Good morning, High Point. Good morning. So good to be with you. Thank you for being here. Those of you who are here in person, appreciate those of you who are joining us online. We're really glad to have you. You know, I, I think that every parent knows just how much children enjoy pretending, right? I'm talking about when they play pretend to be something that they're not. And they even dress up to play the part. When Brooke was a little girl growing up, we had a little chest full of hats and scarves and fake jewelry and some of mom's old high heel shoes and tops and dresses. And, and man, did she ever have fun pretending to be an adult. It was, it was actually hilarious watching her imitate us. And you go, wow, do I really act like that? <laughs> I think we all agree that it is a good thing for children to pretend. It's a healthy activity, and truly it's a, it's a normal part of their development as human beings. But notice that I said it is healthy for children, not for adults. Oh, you're going to be that way today, huh? All right, all right, just watch it. I got the microphone, remember. <laughs> Many people tend to carry this form of childlike behavior into their life as an adult. In fact, all of us have been guilty of this. We all continue to pretend to be, uh, to pretend in a variety of ways. For example, how many times have you laughed at a joke that wasn't funny at all? You pretended that it was funny because you wanted to be accepted by the person who told the joke. Ever been there? How often have you pretended to be interested in what another person had to say because you wanted to appear concerned and compassionate when in truth you had no time to be either one? How often have you posed in a meeting a deep question in order to seem intellectual or given money in order to be seen as generous or exposed another person's sin so that you could appear more holy. Anyone feeling childish today? We all pretend. From time to time, we all say and we do things that make us look like we're something that we're not. And make no mistake about it, when adults embrace this kind of a deceitful behavior, God considers it to be sin. In fact, another word for pretending is hypocrisy. And it's a practice that Jesus repeatedly condemned. In Matthew 6, verses 1 and 2, he said this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness. In other words, your righteous pretending in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Later on in Matthew 24, 51, Jesus went so far as to warn that hell would be populated by hypocrites. By the way, the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word meaning actor. Originally, it referred to a Greek actor who put on elaborate masks in order to play his roles. And this is one of the ways in which we all sin. We do the same thing. We, we deceive others by donning masks of various kinds in order to pretend to be something that we're not. Well, today as we consider, continue in our series from the book of Acts, unfortunately, we see this kind of sinful behavior and it's popping up early in this first church. And I believe in our study of this particular incident that happens today, that it will help us to better understand that why pretending like this is such a big deal to our Heavenly Father. So let's get at it. Turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32, where we left off last week. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you. Or you can follow along on the screens. Every scripture I read will be on there, and you can follow along. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. I'll read me reading from the New International Version today. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that 
any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is describing the early church. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For time, excuse me, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. On to chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I can understand fear, right? I want to go back and I want to look at this story much more in depth, much more closely, to do my best to help you to better understand what happened and why the response was what it was and why it was so swift. And to begin with, I, I first want you to notice that this chapter from the history of the first church starts out wonderfully. I mean, the first few verses of this portion of Luke's historical account is further proof of the health of this amazing church. They enjoyed powerful teaching from the apostles and that means that, that Peter and John were doing exactly what the Sanhedrin had warned them and told them not to do. They continued to teach about the resurrection of Jesus. They also had wonderful fellowship. It says in Luke 32, all the believers were, in, were one in heart and mind. These first Christians literally experienced the unity that Jesus had prayed for that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Plus, they readily ministered to each other's needs. These Christians enjoyed powerful Bible teaching and moving worship, and, it allowed, and they allowed it to impact their daily lives. And the impact manifested into powerful ministry as they worked to meet the practical needs of people through feeding the hungry, through providing clothing and shelter and all those needs that human beings have. And all of it was done in the name of Jesus. In fact, verse 34 says they were so faithful in this practice that there were no needy persons among them. And I'm glad to say that for the most part, Christians in churches still behave this way today. Christians still work to help meet the physical needs of their fellow man. Thank God for the church. In fact, if all of the good that was being done in Jesus' name were to suddenly stop in our day, our world would spin into chaos. Here in America, thousands would become hope homeless, while hundreds of thousands would have little or no food to eat whatsoever. Millions of children wouldn't receive, uh, 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 wouldn't have decent clothes to wear, and they wouldn't receive a Christmas gift. 
If all of the good things that are being done in the name of Jesus were to suddenly stop within weeks, millions of people throughout the world would begin to slowly starve to death. But thank God there are still mature Christians like those first believers, those who understand that being a Christian and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ means being a giver. They know that Christian worship is more than what we do here in this sanctuary on Sunday mornings. It is instead a, a lifestyle of sacrificially giving to help meet the physical needs of others. And please understand that the kind of ministry that they were doing in this new church was greatly needed for a couple of reasons. First, as Luke told us in chapter two, tens of thousands of pilgrims came to Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost. And on that day, thousands of them became Christians and they never went home. They instead decided to stay in Jerusalem so they could sit under the teaching of the apostles. Secondly, I am confident that many of these new believers who were residents of Jerusalem probably lost their jobs because of their conversion to this newfound faith. So there was a great deal of physical need going on in this first church. And the members showed their love to God by giving in order to meet those needs. In fact, Luke tells us that it became a common practice for someone to sell a piece of property or a home and then bring the, the, the proceeds to the apostles so they could distribute it as there was need. Now, I want you to understand, just like it would be for you or me today, this was a very costly and sacrificial thing for somebody to do back then because it meant liquidating capital assets that could be irreplaceable. When someone did this, or even if someone were to do that today, they were reducing their own personal security. They were giving up a potential source of future income. But these first believers, they seemed glad to do this. And I think they did it for a couple reasons. First, they knew that Jesus had given his life for them, that he had died for their sins. There was nothing they wouldn't do in return for him. So they gave as a response to what he gave. But the second reason I think that these people were, were so willing to give so generously was because they, they understood a very important principle regarding stewardship. They knew that whenever we give in Jesus' name, like we do through our tithe and through our offerings, we turn something temporary into something eternal. J. Wallace Hamilton once said, stewardship is that divine alchemy by which money is transmuted into men and material possessions exchanged for the eternal riches of mind and spirit. And you know something, a common complaint from people whenever their pastor happens to preach on stewardship is this, why is he talking about money and not preaching the gospel? Who's thinking that right now? I could offer many answers to that question for you, but here's the bottom line. There is no such thing as preaching the gospel without talking about money because money and the spread of the gospel are intricately intertwined. It's as simple as that. The sad fact is the reason we haven't spread the gospel into greater parts of the world is because we haven't had enough money to do so. We have enough money, we don't give enough money in order for these things to happen. And this is because churches cost money to operate. Ministry is expensive. Proclaiming the eternal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ requires financial resources. And for anyone to think otherwise, well, you're just not being realistic. You are fooling yourself because we all know that to operate anything in this world today requires financial resources. You see those temporary pieces of paper that, that we give as tithes and offering every Sunday, they are used to provide Sunday school uh, curriculum, to pay mortgages, power bills, building maintenance and upkeep, and salaries so that this place can be a place where we teach the eternal truth of the love of God. 
Money makes this temporary place possible. But understand that here, in this temporary place, people become Christians. Eternal destinies are determined in this church and churches all over the world every single week. In addition, money also goes to cover the cost of sending missionaries all over the world. We have, I believe, over 42 missionary works that we support as a church so that other people in other parts of the world can have the opportunity to receive Jesus as well. So I'll say again, giving money is a way of making temporary things eternal. And that, my friends, is why it is so rewarding for us to give. And I think this is something that this early church in Jerusalem discovered. And Christians who give today they also understand the, the eternal difference that their gifts actually make, and they love to give. It's a source of joy. And, and because they know by investing in the temporary thing, like money in the church, they are literally making an eternal difference. I think that this is the, the kind of believer that Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, when he wrote this, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves it when someone enjoys giving according to these principles. Well, as an example of this practice of sacrificial giving, Luke tells us his story about the actions of a man from Cyprus named Barnabas. His real name was actually John, but the apostles gave him this nickname, which means son of encouragement. And I must say that I feel very fortunate as your pastor because we have many Barnabases right here at High Point Assembly. People who are always willing to give up their, their time and their talents and their resources without being asked to do so. Their selfless actions are a source of encouragement to me, to the staff, to our board, and to everyone in this church family. In fact, when I speak this, there are probably faces of people who are going through your mind that you know to be Barnabases. Well, like many others, this man Barnabas sold some land, and he brought the entire proceeds to the apostles to use as they saw fit. Now, I'm not sure why Luke decided to mention this particular gift. Perhaps it was because of its magnitude, or perhaps it could have been because they were in great need and it came in just a nick of time, or, or maybe this was just something that was so typical of Barnabas, who was always doing encouraging things like this, that he wanted to talk about it, but for whatever the reason, because of it, the whole church was rejoicing about it and everyone was talking about this gift that Barnabas had given and how generous it was. And at this point, this is where Luke introduces us to a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. This couple also had sold land and brought money from the proceeds to the apostles, but their gift was very different. Their actions clearly illustrated not selfless giving, but selfish, hypocritical giving. You see, they were using their gift to pretend to be something that they weren't. Barnabas gave freely. Barnabas gave with no strings attached, but they gave in order to be noticed and to be recognized, to look good in the eyes of the other people in that church. They gave not to meet a need, but to receive the kind of acclaim that Barnabas was getting. And I can imagine, I can just imagine Ananias saying to his wife, Ananias, I wish people were praising us like that. I mean, look, look at all the attention that, that, that John is getting, why they've even given him the nickname Barnabas. Wouldn't it be nice for our friends and our, to look at us this way, honey? So they decided to sell their property. But unlike what Barnabas did, when he sold his property, they took back a portion of the proceeds. Now, maybe they had intended to give it all at first, like Barnabas did. But perhaps the more they looked at that money, the more they began to love it. And this is where the evil of their hypocrisy was hatched. We don't really know. But it's a good illustration of the fact, or the fact that, that one way to break the stronghold 
that money seems to have on us, particularly Americans, is to give it away to meet the needs of others in the name of Jesus. But these two people, this married couple, they didn't do that. They thought, nobody knows how much we received when we sold this property. Why don't we just keep some of it? Nobody's ever going to know. But the people will still say, they're just like that Barnabas, son of encouragement. So they decided to lie to Peter and to the Spirit of God as well. And in this decision and its consequence, we see the words of James 1, 14 and 15 come to life. I don't know if you remember that scripture, but it'll be up on the screen. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In other words, Ananias and Sapphira's evil desires gave birth to sin, and their sin, when it became full-blown, gave birth to their own death. And let me point out another difference between these two and Barnabas. Barnabas was led by the Holy Spirit, but the scripture tells us that Ananias and Sapphira were following the lead of Satan. Look at Acts 5.3. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? God gave Peter the discernment to know what was really going on here. They said one thing, but they did something different. And it was Satan who hatched this whole idea in their their minds. And the reason I point this out to you is so that you will note how Satan has now altered his tactic. Remember, Satan's purpose is to oppose the work of God. In fact, that's what his name literally means. That's why he's called the adversary. He's gonna be the adversary to anything in God's kingdom for good. So where God is at work, Satan will also be active as well, opposing God's work in any way that he can. Well, as we saw last week, his initial response to God's work in that first church was being persecuted or was to persecute the apostles through the the Sanhedrin. But this tactic backfired on them because not only did it fail to silence the apostles, but it actually gave them a, a platform one in which they, were, they continued to share their faith and God's work took great strides forward and his church continued to explode in growth. Well, since the attack that came in from the outside wasn't effective, Satan tried to attack from the inside. And so he did so by working through the deceit and the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. I want you to understand something here. Satan is a limited being. People have this mistaken idea that you have God here and you have Satan here, and they're equal. (laughs) Nothing could be further from the truth. They're not even close to being equal. (laughs) Satan's way down there. He was a created being. Lucifer was a created angel, created by God. He is not omniscient like God. He does not know everything. He, He is neither omnipotent or omnipresent like God, but he has power. And he has ways of moving around the earth. In fact, if you look at Job chapter one, verse seven, the Lord and and Satan are having a conversation. Says the Lord said to Satan, "Where, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Satan himself says he roams the earth. Please understand that though Satan is not an equal of God, he can be a formidable enemy. And he displays the effects of his his stealthy meddling here in Acts chapter 5. Perhaps it was this incident that that prompted Peter to write what he did in 1 Peter 5.8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. This is an important warning for all of us to heed today. 
I mean, if we get serious about furthering God's kingdom, either personally or in our church, like these first Christians did, we can expect for Satan to attack the things that we are attempting to do. Remember, I want you to remember Paul's admonition in Ephesians 6, where he said, put on the full armor of God. Well, that was written for Christians. That was not written for non-believers. When, when God is working powerfully through his people, Satan will always attempt to oppose it. And as we see here, often his tactic is to use weak believers to attack the church from the inside. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 16, 17, when he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. He's talking about Christians who can cause harm. They are weak spiritually, and in their weakness, Satan uses them in an attempt to remove, ruin the harmony and the unity of the church body. And I want you to know that I have personally seen this happen as a pastor. I've seen numerous times when the hypocritical actions of immature believers displayed something very clearly. They were following the guiding of Satan instead of yielding to Jesus' lordship in their life. And believe it or not, the time when this thing happens the most is when a church is really going places. If you're not going places, why is he going to mess with you? He's only going to mess in a situation where a church is making a difference in their community. It always happens that way. You can count on it. Another thing I want you to understand is Ananias and Sapphira's sin was not in keeping part of the money. I'm sure some of you, when I read that, you're going, man, that is harsh. Because after all, it was their money. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was lying by pretending that they were giving it all. They were supposedly following Barnabas's lead, but they lied. In fact, the Greek, Greek word used here where it says kept back is the same, has the same meaning as the word embezzlement. That's what these two were doing. They were taking money that they said was God's through their own public proclamations, I might add, and they were embezzling it by using it for their own benefit. It would be no different than me, and by the way, I, I say this just to paint a picture because I don't touch the money around here. It never goes through my hands. I don't even have a combination to the safe. It would be no different than me going in and reaching in an offering thing and pulling out a wad of money and putting it in my pocket. That's what these people were doing. They were doing it for a double profit. Through their lie, they would still receive the acclaim and the attention that they desired so much from their fellow church members, and at the same time, they would make some money to boot. This reminds me of something that Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote. He said, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. These two thought that no one would notice but something we've got to remember is God always notices. Amen. You can never lie to God because he knows the intents of our heart. We can say whatever we want, but he knows what's truly within us. Amen. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe God sees everything, our thoughts, as well as our actions? Yes. Well, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All the people of that first church could see it. All they could see was this couple who sold something of great value and gave it to the work of the Lord. But God knew what their real motives were. And they weren't either good, nor were they true. God does hear our every thought, ladies and gentlemen. And God knows our every intent. In fact, Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. 
That is a staggering statement for everyone. And that's what our Heavenly Father did here. Guided by the Holy Spirit in verse 3, Peter first chastises Ananias, not just for his actions, but for his evil intent as well. Now, I'm sure Ananias was shocked. After all, he was expecting accolades from Peter and from the others. But instead, he heard Peter's bold words in Acts 5.3. You have lied to the Holy Spirit of God and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Well, when Peter said this, when he pronounced the verdict, God carried out the sentence and Ananias was struck dead right there where he stood. He quickly removed this spiritual cancer before it could do any further damage to this body, this church that was running on all eight cylinders. Luke says that after Ananias died, young men came and they, they, they quickly covered his body and buried his body. They did that for two reasons. First of all, the climate there, a body would decompose quickly. But secondly, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, God commanded that this be done when people died due to his judgment. Well, Sapphira... His wife is no doubt wondering what's taking her husband so long to deliver the money to the apostles. She's getting impatient, waiting to hear the words about her and her husband's generosity to get out. So she decided to go check things out for herself, and she went to where the apostles were gathered. And when she entered the room, Peter questioned her about the sale, giving her a chance to confess her sin. But she pretended in the exact same way as her husband. She simply repeated his lie. And she too was stricken dead and quickly buried next to her husband. God acted quickly in order to stop this kind of sin from spreading because these two were doing more harm than they were doing good. And as the news spread about what happened, I'm sure there was a lot of self-examination going on in the church of Jerusalem. In fact, verse 11 says that after the death of this couple, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. To me, this indicates that others might have been guilty of considering the same hypocritical actions, but because of God's judgment, they decided otherwise. And, it, and it's at this point where I wanna say something to all of you in my church family, there is no church that is perfect. I mean, even this first church, as wonderful as it was, had members like Ananias and Sapphira. And has often been said, church is not a country club for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. That's what the church is, let's never lose sight of that. No church is perfect, folks. So it is foolish for you to be looking for a perfect church. You're not going to find it. Instead, what you need to do is put down some deep roots and work hard to create one where you are already at. This first church had powerful things done uh, in and, and through it but it was still a hospital filled with flawed, imperfect believers, just like me and my church, the people in my church. We are imperfect, and it's, and it's wrong to consider ourselves otherwise. The Bible says if, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. Let's just call it for what it is. But we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and that's the difference. Reminds me of an old poem. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never sings the blues. A church whose deacons always deek, and none are proud, and all are meek. Where gossips never peddle lies, or make complaints, or criticize. Where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others' faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still I work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. Well, to make our church here at High Point the best we can, 
I want to take a few minutes to remind ourselves why hypocrisy like this is something that we must all avoid. And, and I want to encourage you to, to really listen to these, these points because as I said at the beginning of this message, all of us are guilty of pretending. All of us are, are, are guilty of this form of sin. All of us pretend at times to be something that we're not. In a real sense, from time to time, we cover up our real selves. We all struggle at times with authenticity. And there are times we are like the people Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 15, verse eight, when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So to motivate us to steer clear of this kind of deceit and to prevent God from, from having to sternly judge us, let's take the time that we have remaining and try to understand why adult pretending or hypocrisy is such a big deal. And here's point number one. Hypocrisy hurts us. I mean, every time we pretend to be something that we are not, the real us is damaged. In a very real sense, the, the real me dies a little bit whenever I do this, and I become more predisposed to be a pretender in the future. It's like making a scratch on a record. Do any of you even remember what a record was? Yeah, okay. Okay, well, in our kids, in our days, we had a disc and, and a needle went around. But if you scratch that record, uh, you were in trouble. Every time the needle got around to that scratch, it would skip. You couldn't go any further. You had to lift up the needle and go past it. And that's kind of what pretending is. It, it, it just, it, it changes you. And you can never do the full song. You can never do the full story. It sets you back. It was pretending to be something that he wasn't that changed Lucifer, the angel, into Satan. In Isaiah 14, 14, it said this. He said this. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the, the most high. In that prideful, hypocritical act, God cast him out of the heavenly realm. And in his fall, he turned into the adversary of everything that is good and everything that is holy. And the fact is, when we pretend to be something that we are not, we become something that we are not. We change. And what happens is we, we spoil the original person that God created us to become. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes these words. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something different from what it was before. You are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God or else into one that is in a state of war with and hatred of God. To be this kind of creature, the good one, is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. As Lewis infers to here, pretending not only changes us, it hurts us, and furthermore, it robs us of the joy that God intended for us to have. Here's number two. Hypocrisy also hurts our relationship with others. You see, people are drawn to real people, authentic people. No one likes a fake person. The irony is that we pretend in order to make people like us, but they only like us when we stop pretending. In fact, there is no greater destroyer of true fellowship than hypocrisy because you simply cannot be fully loved until you are fully known for who you really are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this once. He said, if a Christian is in the fellowship of honest confession with a brother, he will never be alone again anywhere. And as Christians, authenticity is something that we must master because otherwise we will turn people away, not just from us, but we will turn them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that hypocrisy is the number one complaint 
that non-Christians have about Christians? Brennan Manning wrote this, the single most cause of atheism in our world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but walk out of the church doors and deny him with their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So if you want to be a Christian, the kind of a Christian who leads somebody to Christ, if you want to fulfill the Lord's great commission, you got to be real. You got to be yourself. You can't pretend to be one thing and do another. You have to walk the talk in order to be able to have a platform to talk your walk, to reach out to them and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. So hypocrisy hurts us and it hurts our relationship with others as well. But the worst part of adult pretending is point number three. Hypocrisy hurts our relationship with God. You see, God is truth, and that is exactly what he wants from us. He wants us to be real with him. And the worst form of hypocrisy is pretending that our sin is not sin. Do you know gossip is sin? Do you know gluttony is sin? Let's call it for what it is. We always pick our favorite sins and say, that man and that woman is sinful. But we, do, we refuse to look at our own sin. We do. And it's important that we're honest with ourselves and honest with each other. God cannot and will not forgive someone who sees no need for his forgiveness. It was once said, None are so ugly in God's sight than are those who flaunt a spiritual beauty that they do not possess. Now, all of us are sinners, as I said at the beginning of this message. All of us pretend. But there are two types of sinners in God's eyes. Those who admit their sin and those who choose to pretend that sin is not there. And that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira we're guilty of doing at this point. And only the first kind of sinner can receive the grace of God. As St. Augustine put it, God only gives where he finds empty hands. In other words, a man with closed hands, with, with, with closed fists, a man who admits no guilt cannot accept God's forgiveness. We see these two types of sinners illustrated in Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. It was when Jesus said in Luke 18, 10 through 13, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee pretended to be something that he wasn't, perfectly righteous. So he saw no need for God's forgiveness and his hands were closed. But the other man, the tax collector, the most hated people in the culture at that time, he was real with God. He knew he was a sinner, desperately in need of God's grace. His hands were open, and he was pleading to receive God's forgiveness. And do you remember the account of creation and the fall of man back in Genesis? Before sin entered the world, there was no such thing as pretending between Adam and Eve, nor was there any pretending between these first two humans and God the Creator. There was no hidden sin. There was no concealing. There was no guilty secrets. But then the fall happened. Adam and Eve sinned. And afterwards, what did they do? They hid from God. And then came God's question. Adam, where are you? Have you ever wondered why God asked that question? I mean, God knows all things, right? Think about it. The maker of heaven and earth asked for the location of one human being who hadn't even left the garden. God knew where Adam was, duh. 
He knew what they had done, but he still had the kindness to ask. The reason that he asked had nothing to do with location. It was an invitation for Adam to quit pretending, for Adam to come out of hiding and to be real, real enough to admit to God his sin. Sometimes I wonder if we would still be in the Garden of Eden if they had done that, if they had confessed their sin and opened their hands and asked God to forgive them. But they didn't. They pretended they had done nothing wrong and they blamed their action on each other. And as a result, people like you and me have been sinning and pretending ever since. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down? I just want to say to you, my church family today, that God, just like God called out to Adam and Eve in the garden as an invitation to confess their sin and as an invitation for them to be real, he does so as well to us today. So in a moment, we're going to participate in Holy Communion together. And this is a time when God calls us to the table to remember what he has done for us. Because when, what Jesus accomplished on the cross provides you and I with the opportunity to literally open our hands and to receive his forgiveness. The cross gives us the ability to be real before God the Creator, warts and all, and to receive his transforming power in our lives. Because one of the things his transforming power gives us is that we no longer need to pretend. We can be ourselves before our loving God. You don't put on any more masks. You can be who you are. He loves you just the way you are. And of course, the greatest thing that came from what Jesus accomplished on the cross is reconciliation for us between us and God the Father and the promise of eternal life. Eternity in God's presence in a place of perfect peace. That's our reward for accepting Jesus as Lord and living our lives for his glory and for his purposes. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward. We're gonna pass out the communion emblems. Communion, as I said, is a time when we are remembered. We remember, we take the time to remember what Jesus did for us. We, as we are reminded of the ultimate sacrifice that he made on our behalf and where we offer him thanksgiving and offer him praise. Communion is also a time where we are afforded another opportunity to respond to his incredible gift of salvation that only Jesus can provide. But before we respond, it's important to share what the scripture has to say about participating in communion because this is not a casual activity. This is not something we do to say that we did it on the church calendar and it shouldn't be a things to do list on your Christian calendar. It should be something that we desire to do and we do it with all sincerity and we do it with the purpose of honoring God and Jesus for, the, for his death and his burial and his resurrection and giving us life eternal. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven offers us instruction. It says, therefore, whoever eats of this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The scripture makes very clear that before any of us participate in communion, we must all examine ourselves before God. It is only then when we realize how we must respond to this time of communion. We must take the time to make sure that we are not harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart towards someone else. We must make sure that we don't have any unconfessed sin that we're holding on to, that we haven't confessed before God, or that we aren't living our life in a manner that goes against 
what we've been taught by the Holy Scriptures. Because if so, if there's anything in our life that would bring judgment upon ourselves, as this scripture says, then we must go to the Lord in prayer. And we must put it under the blood of Jesus. And we do that to make sure that none of us are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So if you're here today and you have never received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you can do so at this moment. And this is your response to this communion time. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you confess with your mouth that uh, the, the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In a moment, we're gonna have a time of quiet prayer, where all you're gonna hear is the music playing softly behind me. This is a time for each one of us to pray in our own way, in our own words. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, then during this prayer time, tell Jesus that you believe, acknowledge that he is the Son of God and the only pathway to God the Father and eternal life. Acknowledge that he carried your sin on the cross and through his shed blood, he atoned or he, he washed away, washes away your sin, and that he died in your place, but then he rose again three days later with resurrection power. And then what you do is you confess and you repent of your sin. And the Bible says that he is faithful to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you will become a new creation. When you do this, you will then understand what Jesus' sacrifice was all about because you've now experienced it. And you can now participate in communion in a worthy manner because you have just become a recipient of his amazing grace. And this is not a pressure tactic. I'm just telling you, if you're not willing to do that, do not participate in communion because you will be bringing uh, sin upon yourself. And for those of you here who are already in a redemptive relationship with Christ, we're not off the hook. We still need to examine ourselves. And, and if you find that you're wearing masks of some kind, if you find that you are pretending to be something that you're not, you must confess that today before the Lord. In fact, we must confess any and all sin here before the Lord. This is your response to this time of communion. And after we all clear these things up before the Lord, then we must complete this time of communion, having thanksgiving in our heart for what Jesus did for us. This is the appropriate response for all of us here today. So let's go to him in a moment of, of silent prayer and reflection. Bow your heads, please. Father, you have heard our words, but as we've talked about today, more importantly, you've read our hearts. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. We thank you for the promise of eternal life in God's presence. And our response to you today is to commit our lives to you once again. We give you all of us, Lord. Help us not to put on any more masks, but to be who we are, who you created us to be. We ask, Lord, that you bless these communion emblems we're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke's gospel, chapter 26, verse 15, Jesus was having his last supper. It was the Passover meal with his disciples. And he said this, he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as you eat this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and the battered body of the son of God, Jesus, who was beaten 
beyond all recognition. And to remember in your heart what the scriptures say, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and by the stripes he took, we are healed. You may eat the bread. It goes on in verse 20 to say, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As you drink from this cup this morning, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of the sinless Son of God that poured out for the atonement of your and my sin. And it is that blood that has set you free. You may drink of the cup. Please stand as we sing. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You're so thank you for this day that you have given us to come and to worship together as a church family. As always, Lord, I thank you for your word. Sometimes we don't always understand everything in the good book, but everything has a purpose. Everything has a reason. Ultimately, Lord, you want us to rely on you for all things. You want to be Lord of everything and not just parts of who we are. 
And I pray that our desire and passion would be to give you everything of who we are. No mass, no holding back. Allow you to work in and through us as only you can do, God, when our, your power and your anointing are upon us. So I pray for my church family, Lord. Bless each one of them. Help them in their journey to the cross, Lord. We're all in different places. We're all in different levels. But that's one thing holds true, and that is that you love us. And you desire to have a relationship with us. And you want only the best for us. Help us to seek only the best in our lives. And that best can only come through you. And Father, I pray as we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations we have. Let those conversations be designed to build people up and not tear them down. Father, I pray that we would shine like bright lights in this dark world, that we'd shine so brightly that people would ask us what it is about us that's different, and then you open that door for us to share your goodness with them. Father, I pray for a divine appointment for each one of us this week. Give us someone to cross our path that we can share your goodness with and invite them to church that they might come to know the one true God. Lord, I also pray that between now and when we gather together, you would keep us safe from accidents. You would keep us safe from sickness and disease so we can join back together as a full body, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, as we go our separate ways today, let us go in love. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.